Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 53. Last week, I began the summary of the book of Judges, covering the first couple chapters, which got us through the double prologue. After this, I also worked through the first judge, Othniel, and gave a rather short prelude of the next, Ehud, which is where I'll begin this episode. And with that, let's get started. After Othniel, the Israelites regressed and were conquered by the Moabites, who would rule them for 18 years. At some point towards the end of this period, they cried out with Ehud, the son of Jerah, a Benjaminite, becoming their next judge. In one of the more curious bits of biblical text, Ehud is referred to as a left-handed man. In a minute, that bit of information will be more meaningful. And we're given a great deal of detail about how Ehud overcame the Moabite king Eglon. More text here than in the entirety of the previous judge. Ehud made a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, so about 18 inches just under half a meter. He fastened the sword to his right thigh, under his clothes. Then he went to King Eglon, presenting him with a tribute. Then, we're told that the king was a very fat man. In that day, certainly a sign of wealth and power. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people who had carried the tribute on their way. Which also tells us something else. This wasn't a simple trinket, but something, or some things, large enough to require multiple people to carry. Then Ehud said to the king, I have a secret message for you. So the king dismissed all of his attendants, leaving only himself and Ehud in the room, described as a cool roof chamber. After everyone was gone, and it was just the king and the judge in the room, Ehud told the king that he had a message from God for the king. So, in reverence, the king stood up. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, which now makes his left-handedness appropriate. He took the sword from his right thigh, a cross draw, and thrust it into Eglon's belly, so deep that the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, which is another reason we were told the king was a fat man. Ehud did not draw the sword out of the king's belly, and the dirt came out. If you're wondering what is meant by the dirt coming out, you're not alone. A footnote in the New Revised Standard mentions that the meaning of the Hebrew phrase is uncertain. The same translation can be found in the King James, just without the footnote. The NIV leaves the dirt phrase out and instead says the king's bowels discharged. Honestly, before I even opened the NIV, that was my thought on the meaning, eviscerated. Then Ehud went into the vestibule, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them, meaning as he was leaving, he locked the now-dead king in the room. After Ehud left, the king's servants came back. When they found the doors of the roof chamber locked, they thought he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. In a certain way, and though a little late, it was true. An alternate translation has the king covering his feet, which is certainly a euphemism, meaning he was covering his feet with his robe, 
because he took it off to relieve himself. Combine that with the evisceration, and you might begin to think the writer of Judges has a dark sense of humor. By the way, I do need to get to who is believed to have written the book. The text is silent on this matter. Jewish tradition, though, in this case the Talmud, claims it was Samuel. I may get to more on that at some point in the future. Back with Ehud, the servants waited so long that they became embarrassed. There's likely a bit of cultural context missing here. Eventually, they retrieved a key to the roof chamber, opened the doors, and of course found the king quite dead. Because of their delay, Ehud had an easy escape, passing beyond the sculpted stones at Gilgal, and all the way to Sarah, which was another name for Bethel. When he got there, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then, the Israelites went down from the hill country with Ehud in the lead. He told the people to follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, allowing no one to cross over. They were emboldened and killed about 10,000 Moabites. Given that Ehud had only killed their king, it seems that the Israelites were strong enough to defeat the Moabites. They just needed inspiration. The enemy weren't described as being weak, but instead strong and able-bodied. Despite this, the Israelites left none of them breathing. This part of the chapter wraps up telling us that the land had rest for 80 years, likely beyond Ehud's reign as a judge. We know very little about the next judge. In fact, the biblical text is only a single sentence. After Ehud came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, a wooden tool, approximately 8 feet, nearly 3 meters long, fitted with an iron spike or a point at one end. It was used to spur oxen as they pulled a plow or a cart. It often had an iron scraper at the non-pointed end to clear clods of earth from the plow when it became weighed down. This Shamgar delivered Israel, though we don't know how long it remained free after him. So, this gets me through the first of three judges. One with legendary exploits bookended by two, lightly mentioned. All covered before the end of chapter 3 of the book. Judges 4 begins with what happened next, and it's a little confusing. I'll let the text do the telling. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that presents a little problem. According to chapter 3, after Ehud became a judge, the land had rest for 80 years. But it's doubtful that Ehud lived for 80 years after he became a judge. The next judge mentioned in the text is Shemgar, but we're not told how long he was in that position, or what happened after that. My feeling, and it's little more than speculation, is that he was judged during the 80 years of rest and potentially put down a relatively minor incident with the Philistines, one where only 600 were killed. And I say only 600, as it's a rather small number when compared to the tens of thousands of casualties in other battles. Sometime during, or after Ehud and Shemgar, 
the Israelites reverted to their sinful ways and were overtaken by the Canaanite king Jabin, who is said to have reigned from Hazor. He had a general whose name I'll skip, but was backed by 900 Philistine troops equipped with 900 iron chariots, and they ruled over the Israelites for 20 years. Probably towards the end of this score of years, the Israelite people cried out to God for help, and that's when the judge Deborah entered the picture. The text tells us that, at the time Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel. Deborah wasn't just a judge, but was also one of the most revered women in the entirety of the biblical text, Old and New Testaments. What we're not told at this point is when she became a judge and are left to interpret that it was far into the rule of King Jabin of Canaan. Deborah would sit under the palm bearing her name, which was located between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites would come to her here for her judgment. At some point, she summoned Barak from Kadesh in Naphtali and told him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor. Bring 10,000 men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will draw out Jabin's general and army to meet you with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak tells her he'll only do this if she comes along. Deborah agrees, and the pair heads back to Barak's hometown of Kadesh. From here, they form the army of 10,000, made up of troops from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. The Canaanites hear about the approaching Israelites, with their general forming up his troops along with the 900 iron chariots. Barak, with the encouragement of Deborah, and followed by the troops, head down from Mount Tabor. When the Canaanites see the approaching Israelites, according to the text, God threw them into a panic. So much mayhem that the Canaanite general dismounted his chariot and fled on foot. The battle ended when all of the Canaanite army fell via the sword, with no one surviving, except perhaps for the fleeing general. Then a little background. Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites, meaning the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. This Heber encamped near Kadesh, Barak's hometown. I mentioned the Kenites in the last episode. That mention earlier in Judges was likely setting up this incident. Apparently, Heber had no conflict with the Canaanite king Jabin. The Canaanite general fled to Heber's wife's tent, probably thinking he could hide there, in an ally's tent, until it was safe to go back to his home. What's unclear is if the general knew of the relationship between the Kenites and the Israelites. Heber's wife, Yael, came out to meet the general and told him he could hide in their encampment. She took him into her tent and covered him with a rug. A rug, like obesity, was a sign of wealth. The general asked her for some water. Instead, Yael opened a skin of milk giving him some to drink. Warm milk stored in an animal skin. Not quite appetizing to us, but noteworthy in the land of milk and honey. After drinking the milk, 
He's recovered by the rug. Then the general told her to stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anybody comes and asks her, is anyone here, just say no. Seems like a simple enough plan. But she was going to have none of it. Instead, Yael killed the general with a tent peg, so much for the peace between Heber's family and the king of Canaan. Just after this, as Brock came to the encampment in search of the Canaanite general, Yael showed him what she had done. But the Israelites weren't quite free of the Canaanite king. Instead, they began to resist him more and more, until eventually defeating him. The assumption is that their being ruled by this Canaanite king ended after the 20 years mentioned at the beginning of the chapter. And that's Judges 4. Almost all of Judges 5 is known as the Song of Deborah. This hymn celebrates the Israelite victory over the Canaanites. It's almost the entire chapter. Almost. The very last sentence, and the only part that's not in the hymn, tells us that after this victory, the land had rest for 40 years. Of course, meaning that's it for chapter 5. After this 40-year period, the Israelites did as expected and predicted and fell into their recurrent ways. In this iteration, they would come to be controlled by the Midianites for seven years. What we're told implies that the Midianites were more oppressive than the previous occupiers, since the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their fields, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and an unnamed people of the east would come up against them. These oppressors encamped against the Israelites and destroyed the produce of the land, as far as the region of Gaza. But it wasn't just the produce that was destroyed, also the livestock, such as sheep, oxen, and donkeys. So many oppressors would arrive that they were said to be as thick as locusts, so many people that neither they nor their camels could be counted. They would bring their tents, camp out, and lay waste to the land. Because of this, Israel was greatly impoverished and cried out to God for help. There's one little tidbit in here, and that's that this oppression spread as far as Gaza, implying a couple of things. First, that it was broader, maybe broader than the previous oppressor's control, further implying that the previous oppressors did not control all of the tribe's territory. The other implication is that with each successive oppression, the manner and magnitude was worse than previous. It was ramping up. Do note that neither of these thoughts are explicitly stated in the text, just implied and therefore subject to interpretation. While these groups oppressed them, the Israelites did what they normally did and cried out to God for help. He sent Gideon. And unlike many of the previous judges, we're given a great deal of detail in the narrative about how this came to pass. In this part of Judges, the angel of the Lord sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Gideon's father. At the appointed time, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press, all of this in preparation to hide the crop from the Midianites, 
likely to be hidden in the mountains, caves, and other strongholds. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon was both polite and inquisitive, answering, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. God answered, essentially telling Gideon that this was now his personal assignment, likely owing to him being a mighty warrior. Gideon, in a vein similar to Moses, when he was living in exile in Midian, of all ironic places, asked God, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. God answered, I will be with you and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Gideon still wasn't buying it, replying, If I have now found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you, and bring out my present, and set it before you. God agreed to stay until Gideon returned. Gideon went home, preparing a meal of a baby goat and unleavened cakes. He then put the meat in a basket, the broth in a pot, and brought them to the angel of the Lord, who was still under the oak. God told him to, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour out the broth. Gideon did as he was asked. The angel of the Lord reached out with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock, consuming the offering. After they were burnt up, the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. It was only after this that Gideon fully realized the figure under the tree was truly God. He then cried out, fearful of what was going to happen next. Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. It stands to this day at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites, which, despite being in the middle of Gideon's story, is a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the summary of the book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.